You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's the Long Form Podcast. Here's Max Linsky. Here's Evan Ratliff. And I'm Aaron Lammer, your co-host. Welcome, guys. So good to see you guys. It's great. It's, it's awkward whether, whether you should use co in front of a lot of words in this context, I feel like. Where have you landed? I've been coing it because I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want you guys to think that I'm uh, muscling in uh, making a power play on this show. <laughs> uh, well, you can try it. Do you want to do it again, see if, how it feels? I'm your host, Aaron Lammer. This week I talked to Alice Gregory. Uh, Alice Gregory is a writer for N Plus One. She's written for GQ, Harper's. Uh, I think she. I think her most recent piece was a um, profile of Ryan McGinley in the current GQ. Um, but I really, um, really admire the way that she describes people, um, particularly at a sentence level. And uh, I think I think she's a really interesting interview. So. Yeah, such good sentences. She's a good interviewer too. She's got a good two-way uh, interview spirit she turned it around on you yeah she she um she she kept me on my heels do we have any sponsors this week yeah as if it's about to stay uh you may uh be on your heels uh pretty often because our sponsor this week is ea sports fifa world cup it's the uh latest version of their incredible soccer game which we are completely addicted to in this office we've transitioned seamlessly from fifa 14 to world cup uh it's great. We've got copies to give away, too. So uh, email editors at longform.org. First 10 people get a free copy of the game. If you're trying to keep in touch with more than 10 people, probably you want to stop group emailing them and start an email newsletter. There's no better place to do it than with Tiny Letter. It's simple. It's powerful. It's from the good people at MailChimp. I recommend it. And here's Aaron with Alice Gregory. Welcome, Alice Gregory. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on in. You've actually written, like, you pop up as a character in your um, pieces enough that I have, like, a some outline of uh, the last five years or so of your life. But um, filling in those details, what sort of a path have you followed as a writer, like, from college to where you are right now? So I feel like I did college incorrectly. Um, <laughs> I feel like I treated college as though I were definitely going to go to grad school after college, which in retrospect is insane to me, and I have zero interest in grad school, would never go, don't know what I was thinking. So I didn't really write for the school paper while I was there. I wrote a few like 
art reviews and book reviews, but not really anything major. Um, I always had a blog. Graduated from college, had a job, like an office job for about a year at Sotheby's, which I wrote about in a piece. That, that, that was where I uh, picked up your trace. Yeah. Well, that's that's where it all started, kind of. So the first thing that, that, that catches my ear there, um, me and you are like different in age, but not a full decade different in age. Like people weren't blogging when I was in college. Right. People started blogging like when I moved to New York. I'm maybe five to 10 years ahead there. So when you say you were blogging in college, was that like a sort of a testing ground for the kind of writing you actually are doing now? Oof, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that that's a password protected blog. I think it was oh, okay. from Blogspot or Blogger or whatever it was called. And I would never look at it yeah. ever, ever again. But um, no, it was just, you know, musings. Yeah. It was not in any sense pre-professional. But did you I have mean, amb- was, but... ambitions as a writer at that yeah, point? Yeah, I did. Um, though I don't wasn't really doing anything in college to make them a reality, I think, again, because I was just treating my academic work as though it were the main thing. What, what were you thinking you would go to grad school for? English, I guess. Yeah. So you, you graduated and you got a job at Sotheby's. Um, were you picturing a life of sort of like writing on the side there or like? No, well, that was just I needed a job and it always felt very temporary to me. Yeah. I graduated in 2009 and worked there for about a year. And... Um, I remember I quit when I had $1,000 saved up. That was like, I felt very comfortable quitting with that. It felt like plenty of money to me. <laughs> um, and I think the same week I quit that job, or maybe a week later, I published a piece online for N Plus One um, that was about the internet and feelings about the internet, which I think is a very popular topic. Um, yeah, the human experience <laughs> of... of- uh, living in an, uh, an age of uh, disconnection. Yeah. So now that I think about it, it was a very smart first move. Uh, it got a lot of attention because of the subject matter, and that led to subsequent writing jobs and gigs. And I was surprised when I went back and read the piece. Um, the piece is sad as hell. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. That it, it's actually a review of a Gary Steingart novel, which I remembered. Yeah, I forget the, that too. In taking that, um, that I assume it was assigned? Um, how was it? It was, I wrote something on my blog and Carla, an editor there, asked if I wanted to expand it into a piece. It's a pretty expansive review. Um, like more than half of it is not about the book, but what do you think that the sort of, I mean, it, it was a piece that I, I've had emailed to me like five or six times, which tells me it's being like widely circulated. What about that piece do you feel like made it have that sort of life? Well, it's funny to think about it now because I think, you know, like any piece about the internet, it feels super dated. I mean, yeah. I haven't read it since then, but I can't imagine it feeling at all relevant or not very naive and kind of 50-year-old guy writing an op-ed sort of style. <laughs> I think everyone has a sense that what they do on a computer is private. So when there is someone who writes about it in a way that explains that it's actually the shared experience and, you know, in the same way that a novel that kind of will describe a very specific thing that everyone thinks only they experience as universal, that's kind of what people like in novels. And that's kind of the danger of reading too many books in New York, I think. You can get that sort of satisfaction from pretty minor superficial details. But when it comes to the internet, I think that's kind of what people glom onto. There's a strange feeling of 
hearing someone for the first time sort of describe the isolation and alienation of the internet. And I agree, looking back, it seems, I wouldn't say cliche, but it seems like... Yeah, it seems it, cliche. <laughs> well, it seems, um, it seems like strikingly like universal and sort of obvious, but I think that it's it's difficult to actually zoom back and realize that there was a period a few years ago where the iPhone is only, what, five years old? Like, this sort of constant connectivity was actually, like, a novel human experience. Yeah, I didn't even have an iPhone for a full year before I wrote that. That's something that that's hard to capture about the modern world, which is that we're in this period of, like, intense, intense zoom forward, and sort of we keep recalculating what the, the human experience around this stuff is. And when we write about it, I think we we very neatly become sort of cheerleaders or scolds for um, the sort of techno future, and there isn't a lot of like, what does this feel like, or like, you know, what what is the common experience right. of this? So what what was what did that piece lead to for you? Well, I think um, I always think about it like the shoe bomber thing. You know, you write something that people like, and then they want to assign you the exact same thing. What does that have to do with shoe bombing? You know, like. Now we all have to take off our shoes. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> you bomb one airplane, you got to bomb another. In the exact same way. So yeah. there was, yeah, a lot of, you know, editors asking if I wanted to write about how I felt about other kinds of technology. They didn't really, but it was, I mean, I can't complain. It was like the best first assignment to have. And that kind of just led to everything else. Once you quit that job with $1,000 in your bank account, <laughs> uh, like what, what was your next, I mean, what was, how did you move from, that towards writing more pieces and and writing on a sort of more regular schedule? I mean, it just all kind of snowballed slowly. I mean, I was pitching stuff. I mean, I feel like it's always, I wish I had some kind of, it would be cool to see the percentage of stuff I write that's pitches versus assignments. I always just assume and say it's 50-50, but I don't know if that's true or not. Were you worried that that you weren't going to get stuff out there or that people weren't going to accept these pitches when they zoomed out of the techno... uh, (laughs) <laughs> no, I should have been, but yeah. I wasn't. I mean, I don't think that's like not a move anyone over 22 would ever make thinking that it's cool to quit a job with $1,000 in the world and everything will be fine. It seems like most people who, who are trying to like the first year they're trying to make a living writing, you're like, uh, there's a lot of, a lot in the kitchen sink. There's a lot of like different kinds of stuff. Did you think I need to do this many pieces to pay my rent? I need to do, I need to put out this many pitches. I mean, for me, it was just accepting everything, pitching as much as I could, writing all the time. It wasn't really a calculation. It was a pretty simple, it was a pretty simple calculation. It was just do as much as you can. I think one of the next pieces you did was that Sotheby's piece for N plus one. This piece about Sotheby's is, um, I would say, not entirely flattering to the <laughs> Sotheby's franchise. No. Um, were you worried about mining your own experience so early in that in that kind of way? I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I was definitely nervous that there would be some sort of maybe even legal repercussions. Yeah. And so I know I was like very sure that M plus one's lawyer went over it, though I ended up hearing nothing from them, which makes sense. I mean, yeah, they're like N plus one. N plus one. Who cares? For me, that was the that was the way that was the way that I made that year worth it. You have a way um, in pieces, and and there's another piece I want to talk about that's also um, from N Plus One about Mavericks, which is a surf break, of turning a um, a real experience you've had in a real place and that's very sort of firmly located into sort of a larger discussion, in the case of the Sotheby's piece, about 
beauty and art and commerce and the sort of intersection of these larger ideas. Um, you, you sort of introduce the scene through your own experiences, but really that piece about Sotheby's is a lot about what the relationship of the ultra rich to art is and, and, and what the sort of performance um, of the auction house means for it. Is that, is that a conscious technique on your part? And like, how did you, when you said, I want to write about Sotheby's, my experience, do you start with the experience or do you start with the larger idea of what you want to talk about? Oh, I definitely start with the experience. I feel like I write most things, even things that don't appear in the first person. Often I start them in the first person mm-hmm. and then we'll switch tenses. You know, I'll just edit it so it's in the third person. I, I guess I just don't trust that my own experience as pure account is necessarily interesting or worth it. I feel like you need to do some sort of theoretical or imaginative or conceptual leap to be of any value. Let's take that um, that piece, Mavericks. Mavericks is about a surf break in, in Northern California, where I am also from. I'm from Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where I'm from Marin. Marin. Okay, we're close. So the piece is about a surf competition in in Mavericks, but it's really much more about the experience of watching a surf competition. Do you know, like when you're setting out to go uh, to Mavericks, do you know I'm going to turn this into a piece? In that case, yes, definitely. I had been wanting to go to Mavericks, that surf competition, my whole life, basically. Um, and for whatever reason, I just hadn't. It's not held every year because of the weather, the right. conditions. So I saw, I think a few days before I ended up flying out, I saw that on San Francisco Chronicle's website that, you know, the announcement that it was on this year. So I bought a plane ticket and it was the first and only to this date piece I've ever written on spec. I just kind of got it, had a sense that it would be a good story. There wouldn't be any other people from New York out there because of my own biography. I'd be good at telling it. So I bought a plane ticket and flew out there. And so it it had to be a piece. I mean, I bought a plane ticket and went there. It couldn't have just very well seen it and flown home, you know. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not getting written off in the budget. So, you show up at Mavericks, you take the flight, you rent a car, you go out there. The whole competition takes place in one day, I think, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to get the meat of this piece. You know, you got to get a few good details per hour. What's what's your strategy? Like when you show up somewhere like that, that, and you're like, I need this is on spec. It's got to pay for itself. What do you do first? I mean, wh- like, what is physically? What are you doing at this competition? I have a notebook out the entire time, and I'm just. I'm writing down everything I see, but I'm also crossing things out. So I'll witness something and then within 10 seconds realize that that's not an important detail at all and be embarrassed that I wrote it down. And then you cross cross it it out. Like, don't even type that up. Why cross it off? Just to save time. I write everything down in a notebook and then I'll type it up into a document once I get home to my computer. And you can very easily spend many hours just typing up notes that aren't important. What are the notes on? Like what, what catches your eye? what people are wearing, how people talk, what people look like, how they look different than people in New York, who have, that's kind of the population I'm used to people watching. The ways in which the surfers kind of held themselves in a way that was different than a normal civilian. Yeah, actually, there was a phrase there, like, uh, surfers have a kind of compromised grace. I, I really like that turn of phrase. Are you writing, like, down... It's awkward taking off a wetsuit, but they're somehow graceful. Or like when you say something like that, that's a very specific and I think quite beautiful way of describing them. Is the is the writing being recorded in your notes or are you recording something that you need to turn into writing? 
it's usually recording things that need to be turned into writing. Though sometimes like a, a, f- a phrase will pop up or someone will say something that will remind me that I definitely need to write it down this way. For the most part, it is turned into writing, though, once I get home. When there's a time pressure like that, is that like a desperate exercise, like scribbling this stuff down? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is, I mean, is that, is that a skill that you've developed over time? No, like, how? I definitely take less notes than I used to. Yeah, I'm interested because I, the, I get the notes that you're the first person I've ever heard say you cross out notes. Is that something that you learned after doing this a few times? Uh, Yeah. I mean, my least favorite thing kind of the most immature mistake that I tend to make or that I notice in other people's writing that I hate is kind of the inconsequential, like, fake detail that is supposed yeah. to telegraph something but actually doesn't. You can only include details if you get them so that there's a certain hoarder's instinct to right. hoard detail. But I think the taking away of detail and, and the sort of misleading detail or the superfluous detail is sort of a, a more gray area. Um when you look back at pieces, do you say like, mm, that one, that one I should have like let go of or? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd never reread anything and I just, the idea just nauseates me. I would never, I mean. Because it's also in the in the context of this surfing piece, and I really like this piece, so I'm, I'm going to harp on it a bit. But you describe the international surf competition, which Mavericks is ostensibly like one of the like great um, breaks of. You probably dedicate like maybe a paragraph or two to the like competitive surf element. Mm -hmm. Like if if you were writing this for a surf magazine, that would be like, what the fuck? Right. (laughs) This is not a very good way to learn about surfing competitions. So do you gather like do you go and research the competition? Do you gather a bunch of information and then reject it? Yeah, for sure. Um, With the surf competition, I mean, one strange thing about writing that was that what I was trying to do structurally was indicate how anticlimactic the actual competition was. Like, mm-hmm. that would have been such a boring article to read if it were actually centered around the surf competition, which no one can see, the people are too far away. There's kind of no real-time adding up of scores. It's just not a good event. It's not a good sport to view. I suspected that would be the case, but I didn't quite realize it until I got there. And there was a certain point where I was like, okay, just forget about trying to document what this competition is technically because that's just going to be so boring to read about. And then you also don't have a lot of um, interpersonal interactions in it. Um, There's no like, hey, bro, like we were at the like Sierra Nevada 10. It was crazy. (laughs) Like. I would. I think in the entire piece, only one person speaks to you, um, and that's a sort of an um, unwelcome intrusion. Mm-hmm. Um, did you just say, "Hey, I don't think um, the people are really going to help me tell this story," or is, or do you find that not talking to people as is a sort of a strategic move there? I think in this case, not talking was definitely a strategic move. I mean, I did talk to people and interview mm-hmm. people and take notes um, that I didn't include, but. I feel like that piece, it could have easily been written in a more straightforward kind of sports journalism way with quotes that are introduced and, you know, you explain who this guy is and how old he is and where he's from and what his credentials as a surfer are. It just didn't feel like that kind of piece to me. I mean, I think mostly because it did not have an inherent plot to it. Right. So it felt kind of silly to be giving it all the trappings of a real story. Hey, it's Max. 
I'm going to uh, interrupt Aaron and Alice for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's EA Sports FIFA World Cup. That is the latest in the FIFA line from EA Sports, the video game uh, to which we are completely addicted in this office. Um, they've got the new one out, and we are playing it all the time. We have transitioned seamlessly from FIFA 14 to World Cup. You should do the same, and you may not even have to pay for it. If you email editors at longform.org, that's editors at longform.org, the first 10 people who do that and put World Cup in the subject line will get a free copy of EA Sports FIFA World Cup. I will go to the post office, I will put it into an envelope, and mail it to your house. Pretty good deal. Uh, Thanks very much to EA Sports for sponsoring us, and uh, let's get back to Alice and Aaron. I mean, I definitely get the idea of it being sort of an anti-sports story, say. But once you sort of move outside of the template, the sports story, and you're like, I'm going to do the anti-sports story, there's not like a like a reverse template for right. doing the opposite. The person who who, um, who interrupts you in the story is like a, an old boss mm-hmm. from, a, uh, from a surf shop you worked at at high school. And then the piece sort of turns 90 degrees and you describe working at that surf shop pretty good depth when a lot of people are on this show and they're like yeah I was on I was on assignment and I wrote 25,000 words and I have to get it down to 4,000 words and it's like well if you're making that you're probably not keeping the five paragraphs about your high school job <laughs> so how do you justify keeping those five paragraphs to yourself and, and how, how do you how do you build a template out of a non-template well I mean in this case I feel like I kind of I feel like if you don't have a if you don't have a real story with a beginning, middle, and an end, you owe it to the reader to kind of serve as their chaperone. And in this case, you know, I knew I was writing for an audience of people that probably didn't know anything about surfing, didn't particularly care about surfing. I mean, I kind of had to. Why am I telling this story as opposed to someone else? And why are you reading it? I think I needed to justify justify my own credentials. And how, I mean, how do you, like, why, why, why are you a good person to tell that story? <laughs> because I grew up surfing. Um, yeah. And I think I was able to appreciate things about it and make fun of it in specific ways and see what's funny about it yeah. while still remaining kind of reverent. What, what kind of reaction do you get to a piece like that from, like, someone within the, uh, within the, the surf world? The reactions to that piece were actually totally positive. Um, there was nothing bad, which I was happy about. I think I was pretty flattering. You know, I mean, of course, there were a few funny kind of snarky observations, but also, I mean, who knows who read that piece? <laughs> <laughs> got one email. Yeah. Um, you have a piece in the, I, I guess it's probably the new GQ right now, maybe? Yeah, someone told me today that it's out. It's so. out today, okay. Yeah. You have a piece on Ryan McGinley, who, it's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to introduce who Ryan McGinley yeah. is. He is a celebrity. Yeah. But... If you live in New York and are between the ages of 20 and 40, you probably know him very well. And uh, if you don't give a shit about art um, or like any other kind of person, you might, he's not like a household name. Right. Um, he is a photographer. I guess I'm, I probably saw his stuff like in, in Vice magazine first right. part. And, and his aesthetic is very like linked to the sort of um, nights of uh, drunken debauchery captured, you know, people climbing on rooftops and, and that kind of thing. Um, but in approaching this piece, which is like it's a real profile, like it's it's a profile the way you would profile a, a rock star or a, you have to 
he he's a person who has such a a, a charge sort of is this guy cool or is he full of shit kind of element yeah. that you you have to address that in a piece about him what where did when did that piece get assigned to you and what was your sort of like initial tact on it the piece got assigned to me maybe even just a week before I went down to Miami yeah. which is a scene in the piece um to go down to the art fair and spend time with him my initial I, I mean I ended up I think in the way that you one always does you become much more affectionate towards the subject as mm-hmm. you spend time with them I was definitely much more skeptical at first than I was when I left. Someone who has so much sort of baggage, right? right? Yeah, and, and I'm I'm over I'm I'm overdoing that. No, no. But it's sort of like if you were doing a uh, profile of uh, Lena Dunham, or you were doing a profile of Arcade Fire. They're they're these sort of cultural signifiers that are already larger than themselves, and to not address that is to sort of not address one of the central elements of the central the central element and it's not like they're unaware that there are like people writing about them on message boards and people sort of gossiping about them so how how do you approach profiling someone who has that quality well again i think you do need to address it head on i mean that is the central tension of the piece Mm -hmm. is this guy for real or not i find his work really really beautiful and i was happy to i mean i i always found it beautiful but you can find something beautiful and not think it's good. And I do think it's good. And I was glad to think it was good. It would have been a lot harder or it would have been a lot easier to write the profile had I just think, thought this guy was, you know, a total clown. Is that a weird tension, though, where like, do you have to disguise your opinions like that? Or is that sort of an acceptable thing for the reader to know? Well, I mean, I'm pretty frank about it in the piece, I think. I think yeah. it's an acceptable to write that piece for a totally general interest magazine like GQ is kind of an odd phenomenon, right? Like you're, that profile will be really different in different outlets. I mean, any profile is. But I think there's a lot of places that profile could have appeared. Well, certainly in art forum, it's a very different story yeah, than GQ. Yeah, um, or even just like a, a profile that whose reader or a, a publication whose readers – are on the same page as you necessarily, and you know going into it you're going to have to defend your opinion in a certain way. I mean, there was like a lot of responsibility in that piece to just explain who this guy is, right? Kind of in a very objective way, um, with with a limited amount of space, right? I mean, that's what that's what I find fascinating is the tension between explaining who who someone is, explaining what other people thinking about them, and then sort of subverting that yeah. whole thing and getting somewhere new. Well, Once you've established the sort of terrain, how how do you inject something that's sort of unique into it? So someone who maybe does know who he is or is interested, they're like feeling like they're sort of cutting through that. Well, I mean, I think in this particular case, it was a moment I, I lucked out in the sense that he, we met, one of the times we met, he had just been kicked off Instagram, yeah, which is in the piece. And I'm really glad that happened because that was kind of my way into this whole other theory about him as this guy who's kind of preempted our collective aesthetic of what is cool. And I think that is something that once you say it is very obvious about him, extremely obvious, the most obvious thing about him, but it still does bear repeating, I think. And I think Instagram was kind of the what signaled it to me and what would signal it to the reader. I mean, what people think of Instagram photos looking like, that is what Ryan McGuinley photos looked like. 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you 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 make a really you you make an interesting point there in the piece that 
his aesthetic has become sort of so indistinguishable from um, both pers- like forms of personal expression, like Instagram, and also like Converse advertisement. Right. That it's there's a there's sort of a collective chicken and the egg. Like, wow, is, do this, does this guy's art look like a Converse advertisement, or does Converse ad- advertisements look like this? When you're doing a piece like this for GQ, which you described as a general interest magazine, other people might um, describe as a dudes magazine. <laughs> is there an established GQ tone? I mean, is there a, this is how we generally do artist profiles? H- how much sort of guidance are you given uh, on how to do a piece like this? I wasn't given any guidance. Um, I've written a piece for a men's magazine in the past that definitely was, you know, punched up yeah. in a way that I would have been like just physically incapable of doing. Like these words would have never occurred to me to even say. What it, what it, like what what um, oh, what is the punching process like? You know, like referring to balls or something. Like I don't like I just like whatever. Like I would never I would, something I would never say. But no, GQ was not like that at all. I mean, the editing was mostly structural. You open the piece with a description of McGinley's Wrangler. Um, bringing in a series of models who jump on trampolines and perform various sort of uh, dances uh, in front of him while he photographs it. And then you very quickly say, and I was there watching them all, like I'm the fourth person here. So you, you set up this sort of tableau where there's a stranger watching a stranger watching a stranger who's naked. Right. Um, <laughs> who's naked? That's... <laughs> Well, my important. first question there is, like, what does it mean to to break the fourth wall, like, so declaratively and so, like, openly, like, at the beginning of an article like that? Well, in that case, I think it was just a matter of, it said a lot to me that I was there and it was no big deal that I was there and that it was just taken as a matter of course, that, of course, there's a reporter here and, of course, she's taking notes and, of course, she's looking at you naked and, yep. you know, tapping into her phone and even drawing things, you know, I mean... The fact that that was just not even addressed, that seemed important to me about the way he works and the kind of guy he is and the sort of kind of blasé attitude he has towards things that necessarily either makes people comfortable or makes people forces people to pretend that they're comfortable. In the case of McGinley, one of the things that he stresses about his own work is that the importance of sort of um, having a crew and, mm-hmm. and having this sort of extended family that really the work isn't really made by an auteur so much as a, a bunch of people all sort of contributing. In your interviewing process for this story, did you do you branch out beyond McGinley? Like, are you talking to the Wrangler, talking to the models? Yeah, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people off the record, a lot of models off the record. Um, why, why off the record rather than on the record? Oh, a lot of them just didn't want to be included in the piece. I don't know if he would say he was he's not the auteur. I mean, he definitely, I think he is. He just has, you know, he is the director to this photo- photograph as a director is to a film. And they have crews that actually, I mean, they look very spontaneous, these photographs, but they're not. And he does not pretend that they are anything other than the product of a lot of logistical work. I mean, I was mostly interested in watching him work and hearing what he had to say and observing myself. I mean, I trust I trusted myself and I trusted my experience of him. Yeah. How do you I mean, how do you observe yourself? I think that's an interesting phrase. What is that? What, what does that feel like to observe yourself? And, and how, how do you think about it? For me, it just feels so much more honest. Again, like, why are you reading this person 
talk about like why are we why would we ever pretend that there's not someone writing this clearly there is clearly this person is seeing things that someone else wouldn't see not seeing things that someone else would see so I I mean I always just feel like I owe it to the reader to make the conditions of the article very clear to them without including the sort of gratuitous detail about yourself that I find very off-putting sometimes and you can tell when a writer is doing something to make themselves look a certain way that's like not necessarily in service of the piece but in service of themselves as a, themselves as a character so I try to stay away from that does that present challenges to you as a writer that sort of transparency I mean I'm thinking about like a certain kind of piece it would be indistinguishable whether that that Instagram incident and the Jay-Z in- incident that one of them was like in person and one of them was like clearly secondhand and by being so clear about it so early you can't really go back like once you've announced your presence you can't pretend that you were there at things you weren't there you you a bunch of sort of doorways close off to you is that is that something that's been challenging you at all well i mean i think again like uh, with a with a character not a character with a human like him <laughs> um you know again someone with so much baggage i think you yeah. cannot pretend to be this omniscient like you are having your own personal reaction to this person as anyone else is and hopefully your readers trust that you have been chosen to tell this story for a good reason. I don't know. I, I feel like I, I read a lot of third-person writing that feels fake to me, basically. It feels like it's kind of this, this this patina of respectability. I mean, not always at all, but often I think things would just be more straightforward if you we ha- acknowledged who was writing the story. Do you have models for, for the kind of writing that that you like that is sort of more transparent about those issues? My very favorite profile of all time, if I could write something half as good, I would die happy. Uh, it's called Professional Doppelganger, and it's a profile of Sam Cohn, or Cohn, I don't know how to pronounce it. He's an agent. Um, it was written by Mark Singer in the 80s. And it's just this amazing profile of a guy who is behind the scenes making everything in Hollywood and Broadway happen. And he's, you know, this kind of larger-than-life figure, this nebbishy weird guy that can just accomplish ungodly amounts of things in a half hour, but people have reactions to him and there's no way not to feel implicated in any reaction in any situation you are in with this guy. I think it's crazy to write a profile like that and not admit that how you yourself are affected by the person you're writing about. So that is always kind of the model to me. Interesting. Um, I don't really know that much about Mark Singer as like a like a person. He's a great writer. Um as the person you are in mm-hmm. your um, physical vessel right now, um, what kind of reaction do you get from people? I, I, I was thinking about this. Um, you send along a Harper's piece, which I think is not yet out. It's out in May. Out in May. Where you go to a bunch of cattle auctions in Texas, which is um, a place that you're pretty far out of um, the New York City tap water. In sort of disclosing that, I think it's one thing where like, I can imagine you in um, – in Ryan McGinley's studio and like you you don't look that out of place there you know like you could be like a friend of a friend yeah. but um, at a Texas cattle auction you're going to stand out quite a bit more I mean what, what, what kind of reactions do you get um, trying to do an interview there? There was absolutely no point in pretending I was anything but an outsider mm-hmm. there I was the only woman there I was younger than everyone there by 50 years like it was just not I mean you either take advantage of your position or you're just going to fail I think so, I mean, I was very purposeful. I wore a sundress. I, you know, 
I like used all of these like potential disadvantages to my advantage, I think. I mean, again, it's like also flattering to have like some young girl from the big city there like interested in what we're doing. There's a certain element of just flattering the subject with your curiosity, which is true and is real. Have you gone out on one of these more experiential pieces where you're sort of fishing and just come up empty before? Yeah, I'm pretty good at, you know, cutting my losses earlier. I try to be just for financial reasons. <laughs> you can't really. How do you, I mean, how do you know when you're chasing a dud? It's hard. I mean, I would say like when something presents, when it becomes very obvious that something is an interesting topic, but there's not a story, though that's a weird way to put it because I feel like I write a lot of things that aren't necessarily stories. Either the piece needs to be larger than the subject at hand or there needs to be a story. It's one or the other. It can't just be this interesting topic that is interesting for its own sake, but there's no one at the center. There's no narrative action. When it just becomes a matter of you're just going to keep describing it. Yeah, I mean, that's And you're just going to describe it and describe it and describe it and describe it. And at a certain point, like, who cares? What, well, why? and you're you're quite good at describing things. So I imagine that that's a, um, a dangerous tact um, to, to describe. It has to be an interesting story or it needs to have an interesting uh, person within it. Yeah, it has to have an interesting person or it needs to, you know, like the Sotheby's piece, for yeah. instance. You know, as you said, that was about something larger than just my experience at Sotheby's. So it needs to have that larger than itself quality, or it needs to be a story. I hadn't actually really thought about this until right now, but a lot of these stories um, have to deal with the intersection of commerce and art. I mean, art is hard to write about, I think, because artists usually are not good at talking about their work, and they don't want to. So interviewing them is kind of a lost cause often. And also everyone who writes and talks about art is also a difficult person to interview, I find. Well, you say something in that McGinley piece where he's he's at um, Yale and mm-hmm. he's talking to the students and he says like, no, don't like, don't use this like bullshit art talk. Just like talk the way you talk to your friends. And you describe the way that if you actually do that and act like you're at a skate park, you sound like a moron. And if you use the like um, catalog copy for an art thing, you sound like a person who's like, translating French through Google Translate several times back and forth, and some of the words seem like they're made up. So when I was reading that, I was like, so what, as someone who's writing about art, how do you find, like, where where is the language of the middle ground for a writer? That's a really good question. I mean, you don't want to be too chummy, too bro-y, too anything ever. I mean, for me, it's just I hate, hate writing that doesn't make sense. I hate it of any sort and there's a lot of it and I just want every every sentence I write to make sense. Does that involve like a lot of sentence level work? On, on <laughs> no, work? I, I think there's like, I think it's usually most people think in a way that is logical and then there's like a, a natural obscuring that goes on that I don't like. Does that extend to like using quotations and that kind of stuff and, and sort of naturally capturing people's spoken yeah i love i mean that's always difficult too right i mean everyone sounds terrible if you quote them basically there it's very rare that someone speaks in full sentences full paragraphs says great things i mean yeah like you put quotes around something and someone always sounds dumb basically unless they're someone who's very gifted so how do you compensate for that like when you have a character and you're like i know when i'm with this person they have this quality but then when i directly quote them 
it's something different. I mean, there, that McGinley piece has very few quotes from McGinley in it. I don't know, maybe only a f- couple. Like, what, what do you try to capture when you can't capture someone's direct voice? The way they say it, the way they look at you when they say it. I mean, the meanest, the meanest, the cruelest pieces usually rely on the subject's quotes. Yeah, right? sort of let people hang themselves. Hang themselves. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's really dangerously easy to do. If you quote anyone, they're going to sound stupid. So you really have to, I think, if you are going to be fair, you have to editorialize quite a bit. Almost to, I mean, sometimes to the exclusion of even quoting them. Is that contentious, like with editors that you do avoid sort of the direct quotation that, you know, I think there's a certain fetishization of um, the direct quote yeah. and like I didn't take out any of the ums right. um, in journalism. I mean, it always seems like you're making fun of someone to me. Always, basically. How do you, I mean, how, like, you said that you you liked McGinley, ultimately, mm-hmm. that you, you had a respect for him, but let's say it went the other way. How do you avoid making fun of someone? I mean, how, how do you avoid that sort of natural conclusion? Um, I think I've gotten a lot better at it. I mean, the meanest writers are usually the youngest writers. I think once you are aware of the fact that people are actually reading you, you're going to become a lot kinder, or at least afraid of making enemies. I think you're also... There's a certain maybe everyone should start their career with this assumption. I didn't. But there for me there was like a point, and I can't put my finger on it, but there was a point at which I realized, oh, the person you're writing about definitely is gonna read this. Yeah, hundred percent. It does not matter where you read. Like everyone's gonna everyone's read about they're themselves. gonna read it and it's I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of person it's gonna, gonna it's gonna kill them. Like, why wouldn't it? And I feel like I had that realization too late. What was it like you I know that you um interviewed um Renata Adler. Mm-hmm. Adler, Adler. I don't know why I said it that way. Um, for the believer, Ooh. that's a good person. Who, a person who's good at talking. Well, yeah, I was going to say. Also, <laughs> that's also a person who is like really mean in yeah. her youth. Like, what's like, um, what is it? What is it like interacting with like someone? Like you said, that people are meanest when they're young. Like, what's it? What's it like interacting with them? Me- yeah, well, I was saying, too, yeah. Right? Like, how do you um, approach an interview with someone who's like super mean? Well, she was super nice. I was very nervous. I had never been more nervous for anything. I drank beforehand. I was I was very, very nervous. I was just absolutely sure I was going to feel like an idiot. You know, I'd be super intimidated. And she w- just turned out to be the most charismatic, easy to talk to person. Like in the way that charisma can be very creepy often. It and, does not surprise me that she's an amazing reporter. And like, I mean, beyond the sort of baseline Im- intimidation of uh, interviewing an interviewer, which um, I'm forced to confront on a near <laughs> weekly basis. Uh, I assume that having an interview with direct quotes and only like a little nice little header section where you get to do it, it sort of takes away all of the tools of that we've described that you right. do in these pieces. You don't get to change the quote and describe it. You don't get to sort of craft it in that way. What was that experience like? Well, she, I mean, she was just such an amazing, she's such a good talker. It, that didn't even occur to me, to be honest. It was just Everything she said was great, fully formed. What, what is a great conversationalist? I know like a few people personally who have that quality, and I personally know myself not to have that quality. I definitely don't have that quality. And I always wonder, because it's not necessarily like, I mean, it, it's connected to people being interesting, but there's a lot of interesting people who are kind of very difficult to talk to, actually. I think it's more about being interested. Interested. Yeah. I mean, I know a few people who... It's very obvious that they're good listeners and that they're listening when you're talking and are reacting 
that, that, that they're reactive. I think that's usually what makes a good a good talker. <laughs> um, so I also think you know it's about making the other person feel good. I mean that's like what you that's literally what they taught at charm school. Right? It, I did not go. <laughs> Me neither. But you know, like make the person you're talking to feel good about themselves. Right. And is that I mean is that in some ways at a, a, a cross purpose with being a journalist or, or yeah you have to like make stories? sure you're not you know being influenced by your own ego or if someone's making you feel great that doesn't mean they're smart and talented and I mean it, it can just mean they're charismatic yeah I mean I think charisma is really tricky do you try to charm people that that you are doing when you're talking to them to a story I mean is that how how do you feel as you like uh, establish a, a chummy rapport or, or a certain connection with someone that, that you're writing about? I mean, there's certain cases where the person, it's just very obvious very quickly that we're on the same page. Yeah. We'd be hanging out regardless. Not that we'd be hanging out, but, you know, were we to find ourselves in the same place, we'd be having a great conversation anyway. Renaud Adler was an example of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to kind of modulate your own personality depending on who you're talking to, whether you're talking to an old person, a young person, a man, a woman. I always feel like I'm not in control of my own personality as much as I would like to be. And if I could change one thing about myself, it would be it would be to calibrate my reactions to things and change my personality at will. I think that's a really important skill for a reporter to have and one that I don't feel like I... What stands in the way of that for you? I don't know. I mean, for me, it almost feels like a physical incapability, no matter what my personality is the same kind of. I see that. So... I see your byline pop up in strange corners of the internet um, all the time. You had a piece in the New York Times uh, a couple of weeks ago about, uh, tell me, what, what was the piece about? It was about women who collect discontinued and hard to find nail polish. So I assume that the, the time commitment for a piece like that is like radically different than, uh, say, like this Harper's piece, which I know you've had at work, been working on for months. How long How long does a piece like that take you? Just like a quick hit, I don't know. The nail polish word, piece? Yeah, 800-word times piece. I mean, like the reporting itself, which was an hour or two on the phone and in person and then writing it in a day, I guess. So what's your ritual? Like what's like what's your um, what's your day-to-day like while you're doing some features, some little tinier pieces like this and really different places like – N plus one and the New York Times all sort of mixed together. I'm not very good at working on things all at once. I like to finish something or I like to be able I like to be able to get as far as I can with one thing before I start another, which is not always the most efficient way to work. But like I'm not very good at working on multiple things in one day. Like usually if I'm working on multiple pieces at once, I usually devote a day to this thing and then the next day to that thing. I'm not good at switching between them. How many like how many editors are you maintaining a relationship with to have this diversity of pieces coming out every month? Oh, lots. Um, I feel like there's the kind of like there's a writerly ambition where you want to get published in lots of places and you want to write a certain kind of story and you want to write be able to write long things and you want to be able to write for this publication and that publication. And at this point, I just really, I, as a freelancer, I think you kind of feel like an orphan and kind of like you don't have a home and like it's. I would like my goal is not. There's no publication that I want to publish in so much as I would like love to just have one of these like career long hmm. editor writer relationships that just seems like a dream to me. I think those are rare is, and rarer now than they used to be, but that is so much more appealing to me than any other sort of goal. Like that is the goal for me. Like you have an idea and then you decide 
where is the most appropriate place to take it? Or are you like, I need to do a times piece. I got to come up with a times Z-ish idea. No, it's usually I have an idea and I want to figure out the best place for it. I mean, the thing is, there aren't very many options for any one thing. There just aren't. Like, it doesn't require a ton of mental juggling. How do you know that, like, a piece on discontinued nails (laughs) is, like... 700 words and Maverick, a piece on Mavericks is 3,500 words or 5,000 words. Well, I mean, I think the piece on nail polish could have been. It could have been an epic. Yeah, it could have been 5,000 words long. It could be. I mean, I could see that being like a a book in a way because it's like there's no there's no bottom to that. Like you're not going to get too deep. Like it just keeps going down, down, down into a spiral. But uh what makes what makes you say I'm I'm this well, one? Well, in I'm that case, it just didn't. It honestly just didn't occur to me that it, that piece could run anywhere else but the style section. Who I already had an editor there, so that made sense. But and I know how long a piece for them would be. It kind of just naturally in my mind, the publication and the idea were kind of, you know, synonymous. So is this volume that you're doing now, which to me seems like a like I would. Um, my brain would like spin into several pieces trying to do these much stuff simultaneously. Is this like a full-time load, like a living for you? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, not a, not a grand living, but a living. <laughs> is it sustainable to work in, in this sort of a way? I'd like to think so. I mean, I, I just don't, I've never had a writing job. You know, I've never worked at a magazine. I've never been a staff writer. I've never had anything like that. So I don't really have a point of comparison, but for me, like the hustle is very energizing. And it's not difficult, like, do you have trouble with, like, discipline and, like, being able to, like, treat it like a job when it is, like, so many small jobs with different people and... No, I'm good at that part. That part's not difficult for me. I mean, the, the, the difficulty in being a freelancer is feeling powerless, I think, and having no idea what is going on that's determining your work, basically. Like, if someone says no to something, you have no idea why they said no. So there's like a lot of information asymmetry that you're dealing with all the time. I love when editors even just say like, our editorial meetings are on Thursdays. Like that's amazing, like that changes everything. Like that makes it so much easier. Like I will not email you on Thursday or even Wednesday. Like I'll make sure to email you on Friday. Like that really is helpful. When you imagine like taking like a staff job or like um, sort of locking into a more um, mono rather than poly, employment situation what would that like what where would that take your work like how would your work change if you were sort of locked into a single groove and, and what would you like to pursue i mean i definitely do not i, I don't have a beat but in, yeah. in any any sense whatsoever so i don't think i would ever i can't imagine anyone hiring me to write about one thing i don't know mm-hmm. what that one thing would possibly be in that editor's mind i mean ideally it's like writing long things Basically being able to write one thing at a time or a few things at a time. What you said about sort of being being in the dark as a freelancer in those situations, um, do you do you have a community of people who, who are writing and doing this kind of stuff in New York? I mean, are you is there a lot of sharing of notes and that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, well, my best friend who's been on this podcast, Molly Young. Check out her podcast. She has a full-time job, but she's also a freelance writer. And so we compare notes and share editors email addresses and recommend each other for things and all that kind of stuff is that i mean is that a competitive difficult i mean is it hard doing the same thing with someone that you know so well no i think it's really fun i don't know we're too close of friends for it to be i mean i would imagine it definitely would be were we not already friends such good friends i mean i think we're mostly just cheerleaders 
for each other. I mean, your your writing is very different. Um, what's it? I mean, like, what's it like knowing someone that well? Like knowing them as a child and really knowing like who they are, and then seeing them sort of develop as like a the, the writerly persona. Oh, I think it's really fun to watch and really impressive. It makes me proud. And you know, we ask each other lots of questions and we're in touch a lot. So it's not usually a huge surprise when there's a. I mean, it's never a huge surprise when a piece exists from either of us, but it's also, we've talked about it a lot beforehand. I imagine that at the the clip that you're going at now, you're like burning through a lot of ideas because you're doing a lot of pieces. Um, Do you like have sort of like a reservoir of things that you want to do? Do you have like a, a master file of stories? I do, yeah. You said that the Mavericks piece was something that you had wanted to go to it for a long time. Do you... I don't have any – that was like a pretty like longitudinal interest. I don't think – I don't have a ton of stuff like that that I've been interested in for like literally a decade. But um, I mean it's like it's very, very, very nice when I remember something. I'm like, oh, yeah, like that was something I wanted to write about that I emailed myself two years ago and I'm still interested in that. I love discovering that. That's very comforting to me because I don't think of myself as someone who's like very good at getting in front of things I wouldn't be naturally inclined to see. I mean, I think that's just a function of being someone who works at home, who has friends who basically do the same thing as I do. If I were to describe, like, um, parts of your writing that I really like, it has some similarities to, like, travel journalism, except I, to be a travel journalist generally, which I don't even know if that profession really still exists, but, like, if you're um, Pico Iyer in the 80s, and my dad is buying your books <laughs> obsessively, uh, you're like on the road all the time, you know, you're just, things are happening to you and then you're writing about them and you have, you can sort of um, continually thrust yourself into the unknown and then expect that you'll um, just uh, reap the rich fruits of human experience. But um, that does not work when you're sitting around Brooklyn in a coffee shop with six other writers. No, it does not. Um, I think there's certain tricks. I mean, I think like Twitter is absolutely pointless. A lot of people think they're, they're going to get a story yeah. idea on I was, Twitter. I was like, hoping you were going to say Twitter is the secret. <laughs> no, God, no. I mean, if it's on Twitter, it's already been, it's already a thing. Like everyone else has already seen it too. It's not really, I mean, maybe there's like trends in Twitter. But so uh, that's an interesting, so, okay, Twitter is not the place, but <laughs> no. what, like where, do you have like um, dark corners of, of I have, the internet I have or the inter- world? I have, uh, well, I mean, I think one thing, especially if you're y- young and kind of starting out is you want to be able to pitch editors pieces that are going to be cheap for them to run. So, I mean, I have I recently pitched a story that will, would require me reporting it from a place that I could easily stay at my parents' house. And you have to be kind of strategic. Like I have AP alerts set for zip codes where I know I could if a cool story came up, I wouldn't need to pay for a hotel. How many zip codes does that cover? You know, like three or four. Like if you have friends in cities, like, Ah. you know, I think. Has that panned out? Like have you. uh... It almost panned out once. But I still think I'm still hopeful that it will. And I think I've definitely, you know, like this Maverick story. It ended up running in M plus one, but it could have written. I could have written it for a bigger place and could have sold it by the fact that they wouldn't have to pay for a hotel or a rental car or, you know. I think that's is that a, something you're like totally upfront about? Like, I've got a great pitch for a story and a great couch near it. If I pitch a story and I can, and it's going to be cheap for them for some reason, I definitely tell them. I mean, they have budgets. It's not. One more trick. This is, I don't want to expose it too much, but the Boston Globe's national editor, whoever at that paper edits or like collates the AP stuff is amazing. 
And there's just the weirdest stuff in there. So this is the like the Boston Globe's like curation of the AP Wire. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't I know learned that, that a few on. years ago, and there was okay. some cool stuff from there. Right on. So once like so you're on the Boston Globe AP Wire. There's like a there's, <laughs> a, zip, there there's a zip code <laughs> that is in your hot spot, and it pings, and it comes across. <laughs> I book the next flight. What what interests you? Like what is it that like sets off like your your radar as for a story? It's usually a story that I could imagine being fun to report and that there would be like a lot of, for lack of a better word, color, lots of fun things to see and people to talk to. But again, that it's some larger issue. Usually that doesn't need to be explicitly, I mean, it does in the pitch, I guess, but it doesn't necessarily need to be explicitly stated in the piece um, or it can be like implied. I'm usually attracted to weird places. Often that's kind of what perks my ears up, learning that there's this community of people in the middle of this state doing such and such. It's more often places than people, I think. You actually said in, in that Mavericks piece, you describe um, the sensation of watching someone surf and someone come through a barrel roll, and you describe it as fun and a kind of fun that you personally had not experienced for a long time. And you compare it to sort of like a cliche um, idea of karaoke, someone doing karaoke, not your own experience with karaoke, <laughs> not but my like own experience with karaoke. A, a, a generic platonic ideal of the mm-hmm. um, karaoke experience. It, you describe going through that thought process and realizing that y- you haven't had an experience like that in, in a period of years. And I wonder if reporting these stories is in some ways that experience for you. And, and, and you described like wanting to do something that was fun what what makes reporting a story fun for you? Like, how do you how do you make that experience happen for yourself? It's interesting that you would put it that I like this because um, I think thinking about it in terms of surfing is actually helpful. Yeah, like being a little bit scared and nervous. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's hard to articulate. I think it's like this. Like, there's this sweet spot of feeling as though you have a certain kind of like intellectual mastery over something, but also having no idea what it is. Being able to trust that you are going to understand something in like a very full and deep way, but not being there yet. How do you like? How do you keep ex- having that experience? For, I mean, that's what they say about like you know, like surfing. It's like at a certain point you got to like go like surf in like Costa Rica because you've like been in California too long or whatever. Like, how do you how do you have an experience like that that's quote unquote fun, but not sort of repeat yourself? And not, how do you have it be a fresh experience each time with these? Well, I think I mean that's like the best part about journalism, right, is that it necessarily is going to be fresh every single time. You can think of journalism in, that's just a kind of a way of being in the world where you're allowed to talk to people and ask questions and be curious about things that everyone is allowed to do. You know, you can go into your deli and ask the guy where he's from and like why he's, that weird thing is on the shelf instead of the more generic version of it. And I mean, anyone can do that, but I think it's a real luxury to realize that it's your job to do that. Thank you very much. Anything, anything else we missed that, that uh, we should uh, we should be talking about? Oh, I don't know. You should definitely get this month's GQ for that profile, Ryan McGinley. Um, you should be picking up a Harper's at some point in the somewhat near future, potentially. And um, you have a website that has pretty much all your stuff on it, and we will link to that in the show notes. Thank you again, Alice Gregory. Thanks for having me.
And that was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Uh, thanks to Jenna Weiss Berman for editing this show. Thank you to Sarah Button for interning this show. Thanks to Alice Gregory for coming on the show. Thanks to EA Sports, FIFA, World Cup, and Tiny Letter for sponsoring this show. We'll be back next week. Yeah.